From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Vern Jewett, and welcome to the Holiness Podcast. Today we are uh, moving through a series on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and the study of spiritual gifts by the Apostle Paul as he addresses very practical life situations in the church at Corinth. And today we're going to be talking about that incredible chapter 13, known among Christians everywhere as a remarkable and singular and majestic and poetic statement of the love of God and the way that love of God should express itself even in our lives. I want to say from the beginning that I've been profoundly influenced in my study on 1 Corinthians 13 by the writings uh, and commentary of Ray Stedman. Now, Pastor Ray Stedman was uh, a wonderful Bible expositor and teacher back in my formative years, which uh, was quite a while ago. He went to be with the Lord almost 30 years ago. But uh, much of what I share with you has been informed directly by the teaching in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. And I just want to acknowledge that. Now, uh, you can't blame him for what is said because I've taken most of his teaching and I've uh, wrestled with it myself and have manipulated it and come up with different avenues. But I certainly want to give credit for much of uh, the thought and the challenging thoughts that we will be looking at today about 1 Corinthians 13. Now, first, I want to uh, give you an illustration. We'll come back to this. If I had a power strip in my office and I plugged in all of the office machines and chargers for my devices into the strip cord, they're all in there. Then I took the power plug at the end, turned it around, and plugged it back into the last opening on the strip, what would I have? I would have nothing. (laughs) Although every opening is filled and lots of machines and devices are plugged in, I am not hooked up to power. The strip is only hooked up to itself. I'm only hooked up to myself. The theme we're going to be unwrapping today is the power of his love, of Christ's love in us. Now, it's interesting. We find ourselves sometimes going to study a topic or a passage, and it takes us to places that surprise us. We're going to be looking at three connected teachings in this passage, two of them from 1 Corinthians 12, which we dealt with last week, and one, uh, the topic of chapter 13. 
Remember, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is a lengthy teaching on the body of Christ and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, our larger topic for four or five uh, sessions now has been corporate or social holiness. And that topic is tremendously informed by Paul's teaching on how we must relate to one another as the body of Christ, who is our head. Now, the three teachings that are intimately connected that I want to spend a few minutes on before we gingerly, I, I hate to even touch the beautiful text of 1 Corinthians 13, but before we go there, we're going to talk about the body of Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the power of love in a believer's life. Profound truths that you may see in a different way today. At least that's, that was my experience as I studied uh, this particular linkage. Now the linkage is between chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. A key passage, and let me read it for you. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, these two themes in these two verses are remarkably important and informative to our study of 1 Corinthians 13. The first is the body of Christ. Now, we spent a great deal of time last session looking at 1 Corinthians 12 and uh, very practical things happening in that congregation as we looked and discovered uh, Paul teaching that there are no unimportant people. There are no independent people. There are no self-made people. You, you remember that study if you were with us. And all about the body of Christ. Paul is here asserting that we are all part of Christ because we are one body, although many parts. Now, it's not many bodies. It's not many denominations. All of us are tied together by sharing the same life. And all of us who are believers are connected to the head as his means of expressing his life in this world. You see, by definition now, your salvation is not just between you and God. No one is saved alone into a vacuum. You are saved into the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we are the means by which Christ functions in the world. I want us to notice the phrase, so also it is with Christ. That was tucked in the middle of those two verses. It struck me that it doesn't say, so also it is with the church. Because it is the church and Jesus together 
which constitute the body of Christ. Paul then answers an important question. How did we get into that body? His answer is clear. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was predicted by John the Baptist and referred to by Jesus himself, fulfilled for the very first time on the day of Pentecost, and continually fulfilled ever since whenever anyone believes in Jesus. At that moment, they are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ and made part of the living Christ who has been working in the world through now 21 centuries. Therefore, all Christians who are born again have been baptized by the Spirit. So if someone asks you, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? The answer, if you are a Christian, is yes. You could not have become a Christian without having been baptized by the Holy Spirit. You are made part of his body by that process. Now, Dr. Stedman says, it is not always accompanied by speaking in tongues or healings or fire or even a chill down your spine. You are made to be a part of the body of Christ without necessarily feeling that you are. Remember, the text says we were all baptized into one body. Now, I've been in ministry for a long time, and I know very well there are many conflicting viewpoints as to what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. But to understand it scripturally, it is important to focus on these two verses, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. This passage is the only place in the entire Bible where the baptism of the Holy Spirit is explained to us, although it is referred to in a number of other places. Now, if you take the time and do the work and study the usages of the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit or baptized by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, you will find that what Paul asserts here, that being baptized by the Holy Spirit refers to accepting Jesus, refers to your conversion, you will find that it is confirmed throughout the usages in the New Testament. Stedman makes one more important observation about these verses. He notes that Paul declares it does not make any difference what your national origin is. You remember he said, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Now I noticed right away that the word all occurs twice in verse 13. We all are baptized and we all were made to drink or to be indwelt by one spirit. When you drink a glass of water, you take the water into yourself. Thus, when you drink of the spirit, you take the spirit into yourself and are thus indwelt by him. 
This passage clearly establishes for us that all believers are both baptized by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit when they accept Jesus. So, becoming a part of the body of Christ and being baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit leads Paul to this great teaching on chapter 13 on the power of love in a believer's life. And the introduction to this beautiful poetic chapter 13, which when you're reading almost appears out of nowhere. It is a hiatus in Paul's dealing with all the challenges about the gifts of the Spirit and how they're controversial in the Corinth church. And he has much to instruct the Corinthians by and to correct them with. And here, all of a sudden, he says, Now I will show you the most excellent way. Here's the connection, friends. Because you are now a part of the body of Christ, and because you are now baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have the capacity to act in love. And what Paul is saying in chapter 13 essentially is, do it. Love one another. Now, if we reflect upon what we have learned over the last few weeks, we can summarize two very important things. Salvation is not strictly an individual matter. You are saved into the body of Christ. And part of who you are in Christ are your fellow believers. I think the church today has erred grievously in presenting salvation as simply between you and God. Secondly, holiness is not strictly an individual matter. You are baptized by one spirit into one body, like every Christian. This baptism of the spirit, when he enters your life and becomes the indwelling presence of God in your life, is what Wesleyans call initial sanctification. So let's turn to our text, 1 Corinthians 13. Now, Stedman says that analyzing this chapter is like tearing apart a beautiful flower. (laughs) And I understand that, and you do too when you read it. But we do want to extract three key teachings as we read this beautiful uh, passage. Let's first read... Uh, the first three verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. The first truth that just jumps out of the pages to us is that love matters most. Love is what makes life worth living. Now we need to stop for a moment and acknowledge that this is not just any love, but a supernatural love. God alone can awaken in us this kind of love. God alone can lead us to make a choice to love somebody who doesn't appeal to us, who doesn't awaken anything within us. That's what God's love is. That is what is so desperately needed in the world and so beautifully described in this passage. It can only come as we love God with a love awakened within us by the Holy Spirit. Now, many of you will know that there are four different Greek words used for uh, the word love. And we're not going to do a study on it, but I do want to mention uh, one word is a storgase. It's used one time in the New Testament as part of a phrase, uh, and it's really not uh, a significant teaching. The second word is eros. It's the word we get erotic from. And it primarily speaks of physical or sexual love. And that word is not found in any form anywhere in the New Testament. The third word is found 25 times in the New Testament. And that's the word phileo. It's used widely with a sense of a deep friendship. You'll recognize the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Phile, phileo, which is uh, a deep friendship, and adelphos, uh, which is brother. But the word that is used 225 times in the New Testament is the word agape. It's used exclusively in the book of 1 Corinthians, and exclusively in this beautiful chapter on love. Agape is a word meaning a commitment of the will to cherish and uphold others and one another. Agape love is not a feeling. It's a command to act. Just an aside, because we do compare phileo and agape whenever we study uh, love in the New Testament. And uh, phileo is based on the worth or beauty of the object of one's love. Agape, on the other hand, is based on the nature of the person who is loving. The key here is that agape is always used for the love of God and for the love God gives to the believer. It is virtually impossible to love agape without becoming a Christian because agape is supernatural love. 
I'd like to go back for a moment to our opening illustration. You remember the power strip plugged into itself? Let's complete the illustration by applying it to agape love. When you get saved, you unplug the power cord to yourself and it miraculously becomes the umbilical cord to life in Christ with the power turned on. You are now hooked up to the power. Why? Because the love implanted in you and me is directly from the risen, living, all-powerful Son of God sitting at the right hand of God and living in us through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? I love that picture. It came to me in the middle of the night of the cord being replaced as an umbilical cord that gives us life on a daily, moment-by-moment basis and gives us power to love in a way that we never could by ourselves. Now, of course, let's be reminded of the obvious. What word is more abused and misused than love in our culture? But because love is so often parodied and misrepresented by those around us, it's important for us to hear what God's word has to say about it. In New Testament terms, one can love people that she doesn't particularly like. William Barclay is the master of New Testament word studies. He says that agape is the attitude which no matter what the other person is like, and no matter how we may feel emotionally towards him or her, will seek the other person's good and which will never hate. The opposite of this Christian agape is not hate. The opposite is indifference. This Christian love is undefeatable caring for others. You see, because agape love is an act of the will, it is volitional, it is not emotional. So in our text, those three verses we read, in order to demonstrate this truth we've been talking about, that without love, the most exemplary use of any particular spiritual gift profits a believer nothing is the method Paul uses to make his point. And there are five examples in those three verses. He chose them carefully. Speaking in tongues. He said, if we spoke in tongues with, of men and angels. Now the Corinthians seem to be especially entranced by this gift. We're going to spend a good deal of time in the next lesson about speaking in tongues. But even if you spoke in the tongues of men and angels, and we don't know what the tongues of angels refers to, it may well be, it seems in context, Paul's description of how some Corinthian believers might have seen this gift that they were so enamored with. But if you did 
that at its highest level, it would be nothing without love. Then he chooses the gift of prophecy. Paul values this gift over all others. It's spiritual wisdom. And he says, even if you could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and then faith, even if you had faith that could move mountains, if you had those two incredible gifts, and you didn't have love, you have nothing. If you had the gift of giving, and you gave away all you own to the poor, or even the gift of martyrdom, which is the most direct reading of surrendering my body to the flames, Paul is making the point that no matter what gift you give at its highest level, if you don't have love, the result is nothing. So the first lesson that's very clear is that love matters most. The second Truth grows out of verses 4, 5, and 6. Now, it's interesting how different translations uh, make the text into paragraphs. But uh, I'm inclined to like 4, 5, and 6 being put together as a paragraph. So let's read those verses. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now, it strikes me immediately that love is real life. Love is practical and daily and moment-by-moment living by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not an ethereal thing. It's not an ideal. It's something that puts or takes on shoe leather and gets right into the pursuits of life that you and I go about every day. In reading these verses, there might not be a better way to apply it than to just ask the question, am I, am I growing in love? Looking back over today or this past week or this past year, am I easier to live with? Am I able to handle people more graciously, more courteously? Am I more compassionate, more patient? These three verses are all measurements of love. There's no use holding up any other quality we possess if we lack this one. Notice that in these three verses, there are only three positives. All the rest are negatives. Love is really only three simple things. Some believe because of these verses, it is patient, it is kind, and it rejoices in the right. The word really is truth. It rejoices in the truth. So it's honest. The quality of love we're talking about is that which produces patience, kindness, and truthfulness. 
Now, the negatives that are given here and are associated with love are things we must set aside, and we can relate easily to those things. They're graphic, and we recognize each of them. But they must be set aside in order to let the love of God, which is patient and kind and honest, truthful, have control of our lives. Paul can say this at this point in his letter to the Corinthians because he has already dealt very severely with this church back in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In fact, when we began talking about corporate holiness, we went to chapter 3, and you'll remember he addressed the dissension and the divisions among them, told them they were spiritual babies, and then taught them that powerful metaphor You, collectively, not individually, you, the church, are the temple of God. Love is real life. Now, we're going to read verses 7 through 13. I do feel like uh, Dr. Stedman says we should feel like we're tearing a flower apart. And at the end, I'm going to read it without interruption so that we can just take in the beauty and truth of uh, chapter 13. But I want to read the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 13, and then we'll talk about them just for a moment. It always protects love, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, it might be uh, good to consider, as I studied that word, the King James Version says, love never ends. And that is an important part of what Paul's saying here. Love never fails or ends, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, They will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I want to pick up there at verse 7. Love, in the King James Version, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the NIV, love is, it always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. This is a beautiful description 
that continues to inform us of what this love that comes through this cord as we are in Christ and connected to his power does for our living. The idea that it protects is a good translation of the word uh, really means covers. It doesn't take delight in the misdeeds of others. Love covers it. It may do something about it, but it doesn't spread it around. It protects. Love believes all things. That doesn't mean love is gullible. What it does mean is that love is ready to trust someone anew. It doesn't assume the attitude, well, you've done this to me three times before, so I'm not going to trust you anymore. No, if someone sincerely seeks another chance, love grants it. Third, love hopes all things. No person is ever regarded as hopeless. There's always a place to begin again. That's the beauty of the gospel, is no matter how much of a shipwreck I have made of my life, the love of God opens a path for a new and perfect way for me. Love will find that path. It never gives up hope. Love, you see, is the character of Christ. Love endures all things. And I've characterized this last section as love lasts forever. So we have love matters most, love is real life, and love lasts forever. What lasts forever in our world today? What endures? Well, Paul contrasts that quality of love with the things that do pass away. Now, he's obviously still referring to spiritual gifts in verse 8 when he says that uh, as for prophecy, it will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Those are probably the three favorite gifts at Corinth. But even though they're gifts from the Holy Spirit, they're not made to last. But, in fact, he takes the two gifts, prophesying and knowledge, in verses 9 and 10, and says that they will fade away gradually. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. I'm reading the King James. Let me... Uh, Read the NIV, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. I don't think this language is accidental. The question that immediately emerges at this point when you're reading this is, what is this perfect thing which increasing in our life replaces our concerns about gifts. And if you take the passage in its context, it's very clear that here the word perfect, which means completely fulfilling its purpose or uh, being complete, 
It's clear that the word perfect refers to love, the subject of this passage. Love is that perfect thing. Love is what grows in our life. Love is what replaces our need and concern for the gifts of the Spirit. Verse 11, Paul uses this example as he's bringing his thoughts to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. There's nothing wrong with that. That's to be expected. It would be surprising if a child didn't think and reason like a child. But Paul says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Why? Because he had grown into a man. This is the end toward which a child is moving. I see my six grandchildren not often enough, and every time I can see the growth that is taking place. And soon they will come to the point where childish things are no longer needed. What Paul is saying to these Corinthians and to us is that the mark of our maturity is the ability to love, to love the unlovely, to love the selfish, the distasteful, the ungrateful. Then Paul says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Love then is the perfect thing which someday will be perfectly ours. When I said earlier that I think this language is very carefully chosen, Paul's going to talk in other places to other churches about perfect love. But John Wesley's favorite description of holiness is perfect love. And how can you come to a different conclusion when you read 1 Corinthians 13? So when we come to the final summary, this is what Paul says. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why do these remain? Because they're all from God, the Holy Spirit in us. Faith remains. It's a human response to a divine provision. And as we respond to the Holy Spirit, we learn to exercise faith. Faith is doing what God has given you and me to do. And faith will go on through all eternity. Hope remains. Hope is the expectation of yet more to come. As believers, we have the blessed hope of the return of Christ and of someday being with him. There's a phrase earlier in 1 Corinthians where Paul speaks of the things God has prepared for those who love him. 
hope remains. But love remains too. And the reason it remains and is the greatest is because God is love. God is not faith. God is not hope. But God is love. And so from this beautiful passage and this wonderful conclusion, stressing that love is what lasts forever, Paul begins chapter 14 by saying, follow the way of love. The word is to pursue. Set your heart on it. Make it your chief goal. Seek to become a loving, compassionate, patient, kind, truthful follower of Jesus. That's why we exist in Christ. Have we not learned in this chapter that anything else is to be regarded as useless and wasted time? Before we close by reading the passage one more time, Let's remember that chapter 13 fits in this extended study and teaching of Paul on spiritual gifts. Let's remember chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, who tells us why we have been saved and how we were baptized by one spirit into one body and we are given the one spirit to drink. These wonderful themes all converge. They're all connected. Baptism of the Spirit, the body of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, holiness, and love that matters most, love that is real life, and love that never ends. Listen one more time as we read this chapter in closing and let it speak to your heart. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. 
But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. May that be so in our lives. God bless you. We'll look forward to being with you again at the next session. I would uh, give you just a little word about the topic. We're going to tackle what is sometimes a controversial topic because it's what 1 Corinthians 14 addresses in particular, and that is the matter of speaking in tongues. Now, we will be talking generally as well about spiritual gifts and certainly about prophecy, which is contrasted with tongues. But we're going to do what uh, sometimes when I teach this, I call a clinic in ecstasy. We're going to see what glossolalia, uh, languages, many of them, uh, we're going to see what that means, what it is, particularly what the scripture teaches about it, and hopefully some scriptural truths will emerge that will be helpful to all of us. And all of that, of course, is to remind us that we are not alone in our faith, but we are holy only with each other as part of the body of Christ. God bless you. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.